Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Tonight, we're doing something different. This is the 100th episode of the Futurati Podcast, and we're going to have a good time reminiscing about our favorite episodes. It's also the first time that we're doing a video episode. So we have considered doing video since the beginning of the podcast and have never pulled the trigger, but we finally made some changes to the studio, got some lights in here, moved things around a little bit, and we feel that the time has come to do that. And also, frankly, we think it will help our numbers. Uh, besides that, we'd like you to stick around until the very end for a lightning round with me and Thomas, where we will kick around some of the big themes that have popped up over the past hundred episodes of the Futurati podcast. Thomas, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing just great. What's, uh, what's on the agenda? Oh, um, I meant that it, expansively. I, I hear yeah, you, have, you have a talk yeah. coming up. Yeah, I, <laughs> I do have a talk coming up on the future of real estate. I have a talk coming up on smart cities and um, a few other talks that I don't even know where they're going to go yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> random talk, insert random talk. What, how, how are you going to approach the future of real estate thing? Um, that's what I'm, I'm still waiting to talk to the client on that to f try to figure out where the, this should go. Uh, because there's a technology side of the future of real estate, and then there's the whole supply and demand issue. Um, See, the real estate is really a store of money similar to cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And and so we're going to have more uh, competing stores of money. Um, as an example, when somebody lands on Mars and decides to sell real estate on Mars, right. how, how will Martian real estate compete with uh, real estate on Earth? Terrestrial real estate. Yeah, and then um, and then we have all these cryptocurrencies, and so we're going to come up with more things over time. So that that supply and demand issue is, I think, really quite fascinating. Well, and don't forget, we just wrapped that interview with Joel Sircell, which hasn't hasn't gone live yet, but he's talking about wanting to mine asteroids all through the solar system. So theoretically. Right. All of the solar system, the whole the uh, the gravitational oh, yeah. reach of the sun could qualify. Right, right. This is uh, uh, this raises all kinds of interesting questions in my mind, and and so do you put uh, do you buy that little little bungalow on the edge of town because that's the only thing that's affordable, or do you put your money in cryptocurrency, or do you want to buy an <laughs> asteroid? I don't know. Or mine an asteroid. Those all seem like really different things. Do you buy this home because it's affordable, or do you mine a rock in space? Like the way you presented those those yeah. choices seems a little skewed to me. Yeah. Well, 
is somebody going to start selling asteroids? I mean, who has the right or to property rights to the <laughs> asteroids? Right. Yeah. That came up and we didn't reach a satisfactory answer. Yeah, the, the whole concept of property rights, I think is going to go through several iterations as we colonize space and figure out how legal framework should apply. Actually, space law is a really interesting area that we haven't had anybody on yet. I, years ago, I invited a couple of people that I know about here in that space. Uh, pun intended, uh, the space of space law, but they never got back to us. However, I think at some point in the future, it'd be worth revisiting that and having somebody on to talk about it. like the whole legal frameworks of it all. Like, how do you decide which sovereign controls what thing? And how do you enforce any of that? I mean, it's in space for God's sake. Well, everything about space was moving at a snail's pace until Elon Musk showed up and just decided to start building rockets at, a, at an amazing <laughs> pace and started shooting satellites up into space. Right. Like every single week, there's another rocket going up. Mm -hmm. That was just, that would be inconceivable, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's these game-changing things that happen in society. And so that we're, we're, I'm always trying to put my finger on what it is that's changing so much. Um, right now, one of the big game changers is that uh, in work, um, in the tech world, we're seeing this leveling of all the pay scales for tech jobs anywhere in the country. In the, in the past, you'd get paid so much more in San Francisco or New York. Um, and, and now, if you live in Des Moines, Iowa, or uh, Oklahoma City, you can you can get paid almost as much as if you're working out of Silicon Valley, and that that change in pay scales is is uh, creating quite the interesting dynamic because somebody actually, if you want to own horse property in the middle of Ohio or something, you can use your salary that you're getting from Silicon Valley, and and you can afford uh, quite the ranch out there. And is that mostly just driven by the rise of remote work and distance work? Right, right. This is all a change that came about as a result of COVID. Um, COVID just opened the door to remote work, and people do not want to go back into the office. I certainly don't. And and uh, for that reason, um, it's opening the door. So if you truly want this talent, you want this person to work for you, then you uh, you pay them the right salary, and they can live wherever they want to live. Yeah. How do you think that's going to impact demographics and population dynamics? Because it seems to me like, first of all, it could be, and it hasn't really worked out this way so far, but it could, in theory, be a shot in the arm to parts of the country that are more flyover zones, uh, which have been histor which have historically been flyover zones, but which now are pretty attractive <laughs> in as much as they're quiet, they're away from the city. I'm thinking like Missouri and maybe Arkansas or, or, or some part in the middle of the country where you could make $200,000 a year as a machine learning engineer, but just have like this ranch property somewhere in the, in the woods and you get to know your neighbors and you have kind of a quiet, rustic life, but during the day you, you do this cutting edge work. Well, for the most part, I, I think it's going to result in the expanding a footprint of metro areas. Uh -huh. Pe people still like to be around cultural events, the the concerts, the the professional sports games, and things like that. So they're going to want to be close to those things, but they're they can they're okay with being maybe two hours out. <clears throat> two hours so, isn't a bad drive to a place like New York, or yeah. So two hours, if you only do it occasionally, if you're not doing it every single right, day, right. that's that's very doable for a play and, or a show. And, and then we're also going to see these little little pockets where the critical mass of ta talent just decides to show up 
this might be in the middle of Arkansas, uh, the middle of um, oh, Nevada or uh, Utah, someplace that you wouldn't expect it to happen. And all of a sudden you have maybe two dozen really talented tech people show up there. <clears throat> and that community of tech talent then just spawns lots of other interesting things to happen. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. If, if you wanted to make um, not necessarily an intentional community that's too much uh, that's that's not exactly the feel I'm going for but like say say you wanted to get 15 families technical families right where it's uh, people who are married and they have kids but they're doing tech work and they're remote and you wanted to go to a place like rural Missouri right and live out there as sort of a, in a commune or, or in a, a set of houses that are sort of loosely connected that's possible today in a way it never was before and so you can draw these Silicon Valley salaries and but live in a place that's more rustic that's got things you like more that's just quieter. I mean, I, I think that you're seeing more and more people pining for that kind of life and able to marry that to technical work in a way they never could before. Right. In in Colorado, where we live, the uh, this is especially true in mountain communities. Some of these people like going skiing in the morning and they could do their work exactly. in the evening. Mm -hmm. And uh, if one of these communities just offered such a thing as free ski passes, that might be all of that would be to necessary get. to lure in a half dozen uh, families. Yeah, some some really talented individuals, and and so I think we're going to see economic development get very creative because economic development is no longer going to be about bringing the entire company to a city. It's going to be about bringing individuals because they can go wherever they want to go. You just make it attractive, so Google doesn't have to open an office in Des Moines or wherever. It's it right. could just be. 20 Google employees who live out there and work out there and kind of know each other. Or right. What have right. you. It's very interesting. I find that interesting that you think the, the cities are going to kind of spread. They're going to metastasize in a way. So there'll right. be less density right in the city proper and the suburbs will become a little bit more Metro. And then there'll be like, you know, sub like sub suburbs around those. And it's just these like concentric rings yeah. of steadily decreasing populations. <clears throat> yeah. And, and they're, they're going to form around, Oh, certain landmarks or certain, um, these, these suburbs are going to have certain laws that attract uh, these type of people. A special economic zone, but targeted at yeah. programmers. Yeah, and it might be, oh, something that incentivizes new startup businesses or yeah. something mm -hmm. like that. Because virtually every one of these people has got some side hustle going on <laughs> that uh, they're, they're going to make a killing on eventually. That's what they think anyway. Yeah, we are known for that. Well, they've been trying to do stuff like that for a while. So New York right. has got programs in place that are trying to shock these blighted areas back into life by bringing startup town out there. I don't have really a good sense of how successful all those things have been. I know a lot of those experiments have faltered in various ways and <clears> it would be interesting to get into why, but it does give me hope that people are thinking in that direction. Cause there's just, there's no reason we all have to live on top of each other in Denver or in New York or a place. Like that. I mean, I love New York, you know, I've, I've been multiple times. I, I love the city, but uh, being able to live outside of it and still access it has a lot of appeal, especially with two young kids. You know, I don't necessarily want them. Yeah. Race, racing kids in on Manhattan would be tricky. <laughs> I mean, that's such a, such a, uh, a foreign lifestyle right. to, me, to me anyway. Well, to me as well. Yeah. We're, and, we're, we're both farm boys. <laughs> yeah. So, so to acclimate to that, that lifestyle, I mean, it's going to be real challenging for somebody who just wants to move there and absorb the culture. Um, but at, at the same time, uh, when you, when you think about, uh, you know, some, some little pocket of a city where um, maybe it's around 
uh, maybe they put in one of these little tiny nuclear power plants uh, that um, micro reactor yeah and and people want to be somewhere close to that i don't want to be real close to it but (laughs) (laughs) um, but uh, that might be a big draw as well so all of these these things have have their own kind of uniqueness their own charm their own um, ability to to draw talent in and and certainly changing the tax base in some way, offering some incentive, some tax credit, some something, uh, a trade off for your skills, uh, that sort of thing. All of the, all of these things come into play as uh, we're going to kind of redefine the nature of cities. I wonder if you could approach that from the other direction and and go to these little municipalities and try to work with the city council to create incentives around tech talent moving out there? Because I mean, if somebody's making $300,000 a year as a Facebook engineer or something like that, I mean, and they're living in Des Moines or, or Kansas or wherever, they're going to want to do things with that money. I mean, they can't put it all in crypto. I mean, they probably put a lot of it in crypto, but you can't yeah. all go to Bitcoin, right? So I mean, they're going to be going to movies, they're going to be going to coffee shops. And I got to think that if it if you worked all the details out correctly, you would more than make up for the lost tax revenue in all the extra spend that would come when you've got, uh, you know, let, let's say it's 10 people, you know, three, $3 million a year uh, in gross revenue that they're making and that they will be spending somewhere, sending their kids to whatever, yeah. do whatever, horse riding lessons or, you know, fly fishing or guided tours of, uh, of whatever, you know. Um, so if, if, you, if you found the right municipality, if you found the right place where they were amenable to that, you could approach it from that side too and say, what, what could we do to make this a place that tech workers want to go in the great diaspora? Yeah, so I, I think there's going to be lots of experimentation because this, this really does open the door for kind of this new generation. Gen Z is going to be um, moving into decision-making roles, and they come with a vastly different um, kind of set of experiences and set of needs and desires. And, and so they're going to be <laughs> challenging the assumptions that have been driving most decisions of the past. That's true. Um, so I, uh, I think we're, we're going to see lots of fascinating changes and it. And at the same time, the world is speeding up. So we're, um, one of the big things the internet has done is it's created increasingly more awareness of the world around us. And as we, we think about how, how we know about things and just our ability to absorb so much more information than ever before in history, um, well, and to capture a lot more of it too, and not just yeah. absorb, but just all the pictures that are taken, even, even if no one ever looks at them, it's just, yeah. it's exabytes of data sitting around that people could, could use. Yeah. In some way. I, I easily read a thousand headlines every day, <laughs> uh, easily. And that was just simply not possible 20 right, years right. ago. And, um, and these are all being AI driven. So it, it's headlines that I'm most interested in. So right. they're being fed to me and, uh, that that changes the equation when you when you have that much more information about the topics you're most interested in, um, yeah. So that can that can take us off into areas that we have not considered in the past. Well, yeah. I mean, for one thing, the omnipresent threat of sculpting the information landscape that a person encounters, so that they're they 
sort of move towards one set of political preferences or they they move towards one of the polar ends of the political spectrum in a way that would have been really hard to accomplish, I think, not yeah. that long ago. I, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that that's been maybe a little overstated uh, and that it's, it's not as possible to manipulate people's political views as is commonly presumed. But, I mean, I am still a machine learning engineer and I've done recommendation systems and natural language processing. I've got some idea of what can be accomplished with that. And with what's on the horizon, GPT-3 and the possibility of churning these things out really quickly, much more quickly than it would be possible for even a really conscientious person to verify, then you start to get into some uh, some troubling territory, I would say. Well, yeah, and you have to ask the question of what's, uh, what's going to happen with long-term exposure to our own echo chambers that as well. Um, yeah. But when you when you hear just one side of the argument over and over and over again from a thousand different angles, what does that do to uh, kind of your underlying assumptions? Right. Uh, how you how you rationalize uh, kind of the decisions you're making in life? Uh, it changes a lot of things. Yeah, everything you think begins to take on this sheen of inevitability where it, it's almost impossible for you to, to even imagine an alternative explanation. I do think that artificial intelligence, social media, and these other technologies do hold the promise of puncturing that bubble if, if we just use them in that way. And I don't have you know, even the inkling of a solution to that problem, whether it's a policy solution or a technological solution, but it, it surely wouldn't be that hard to... Yeah expose people to information they're not familiar with or, yeah. or that that challenges their preconceptions in some way yeah i um I'm, I'm hearing a lot of stories about the failures of ai up to this point and the chatbots that they're using and how the <laughs> one of the chatbots on facebook is actually telling you to to sign off and get out and resign your account on facebook really <laughs> i hadn't heard that <laughs> yeah so so the, bot, the bot's just like run. <laughs> yeah, that, it's just the makings of a horror movie. I don't know what else you need to see. Yeah, that that one didn't turn out the way they had <laughs> planned. But <laughs> and the suck bot did not go as planned. Uh, there's lots of racial bias. There's lots of yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm sure there's lots of bad advice all around. There is. Um, yeah. And it, but it, but it still uh, holds a lot of uh, potential to really change the world for good and for bad. And I mean, I, I hope we err more on the side of changing it for the good. Well, yeah, we, we can all hope for that. Yeah. <laughs> Should we spend some time talking about the podcast? Mostly we've just shot the shit over real estate. Yeah, let's, uh, let's jump in and talk about uh, some of these past topics that we've covered. And, and you know, the, the variety of topics that we've covered is just truly astounding. I mean, we've gone all the way from quantum computing to cryptocurrency to um, space hotels and uh, asteroid mining. Um, and when you, when you look at that entire spectrum of things, um, I feel truly blessed because I'm learning a lot. Yeah. Uh, no, and that's, that's, I'm in a for, fortunate position of being able to talk to experts on a weekly basis, some world renowned expert on a topic and being able to bounce ideas back and forth with them. Uh, I mean, very few people are actually getting that opportunity to do that. 
Oh, that's 100% true. And I mean, we, we have really cast a wide net. We've got into philosophy quite a lot. We've, I mean, how many times have we debated consciousness or free will or yeah. ethics or panpsychism like with Matt Pines? Uh, we, we've got gotten into aesthetics quite a lot, uh, especially with Frederick Turner. We've talked a lot about history, the structures of society. I like to think that we were technical sorts and, and we like to geek out on technology. And, you know, I, I write right. code and you, you used to be an IBM engineer, but we like to get into the side of it that technical shows don't often get into the, the human side of it, the philosophy side of it, uh, you know, how, how these things impact lives and, and what they mean in, in a deeper sense. Yeah. And, uh, Kind of all the faux pas along the way. <laughs> yeah, we, we have definitely stumbled here and there. Uh, yeah. Luckily, we edited most of that out. So <laughs> for all you know, we're flawless and perfect in our presentations. Never, uh, never fail. Not even land. close. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Every joke lands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you want to talk about some of the uh, the best episodes that we've done. So the next segment after the shoot the shit part is to talk about some of our favorite episodes. Now, I, elsewhere I've described this as being like, being asked to choose your favorite child. It's, it's really, really difficult because every episode we've put a lot of work into, they've almost always turned out better than I thought they would. So like, uh, uh, you know, my friends who I talk to about this, they have a joke where I come home or I talk to them. I was like, that went really well. And they're like, you say that every week. And it's like, <laughs> I, I thought it wasn't going to go that well, or I didn't know if we'd have enough to talk about how are we going to fill an hour with this, you know, but it goes in these weird tangents. And at the end of the day, I'm almost always more happy with it than I thought I would be. Um, that having been said, some episodes are, are clear standouts. So I thought we'd go back and forth and, uh, you know, get misty eyed over some of our favorite episodes. Do you want to go first? You want me to go first? I don't really care. Um, well, I'll just, I'll just throw one out. One of, one of my favorites is, uh, the interview with Patrick Friedman, yeah, um, yeah. who is the grandson of Milton Friedman. Um, and he's working on a project called Seasteading, which is building cities, essentially countries, uh, on the ocean. And, um, and he, it was such a grandiose plan. And I actually met him in person several years back, but, uh, it hasn't gone according to plan for him and he hasn't advanced nearly as fast as he'd hoped he would. Um, and I, I could hear lots of frustration in his voice, but it, I think it still has uh, some amazing potential where you, you take these, uh, barge like, uh, housing yards, if you will, and you uh, attach them all together and you create a community on the ocean like that. And you can create ocean farms, you can create an entire ocean country, if you will. Um, but he hasn't gotten to the point where that's, um, that's quite happened yet. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm hoping it does because I'm fascinated uh, to be a bystander and watch it because I don't want to get myself my fingers dirty because that's that would be wrong <laughs> or what yeah building out there in the ocean yeah that's it's a huge project that he's undertaken yeah. and a huge goal that he set his sights on yeah so so one of the big problems that he that he emphasized was that they don't even know if it's possible to anchor uh, a community out in the ocean to the seafloor yeah just uh, just how do you how do you put cables in place and how long do they last in the ocean and will they actually survive um, a hurricane if you will and uh, and I, th I think that's a terrific uh, uh, challenge to, to to work your way through um, 
So anyway, I, I wish him the best. On you know, that episode was fun for me too, because I wasn't in it. So I got to listen to it like everybody else does. I just, I waited <laughs> for it to come out. I didn't, I didn't cheat or listen to it in advance. I just put it on at the gym like everybody else does. And I thought, I thought you did a great job. So what, what was one of your favorite ones? So I think the first episode we did that really changed my mind on something substantive was episode eight with Dr. Mark Jackson, uh, who's, uh-huh. who's at Quantinium and he's an expert in quantum computing. I went into that episode thinking, you know, quantum computing is one of these things that's always 10 or 15 years away. And someday the, the promise will come to fruition, but it's probably not going to be in my lifetime, maybe my kid's lifetime. I came out of that conversation thinking, no, we're probably not that far away from seeing real economic value from quantum computing. Yeah, the thing that stood out in that episode to me was that um, he was able to take these super complex topics and putting them, put them down into a level that virtually anybody could understand. Um, and, and I found that quite fascinating because he's, he's got a real gift for translating the super complicated into um, kind of normal person speak. Yeah, he does a really good job with that. Um, probably his background in the university system and having to explain these things. But he's now the chief evangelist for Quantinium, and so his whole job is to travel around and yeah. talk to people and explain complex ideas in ways they can understand and build hype around the technology and get dollars and, and, and uh, enthusiasm behind the development of it. Right, right. Yeah, that um, Quantinium is a company that uh, you and I are, mm-hmm. uh, are definitely following very closely because we had uh, kind of a, a lot to do surrounding that with interviews with the people at Honeywell, with um, uh, some of the other quantum computing experts in the world. And that, that led to um, maybe in some tiny part the, the company that turned into Quantinium. Well, that's why our equity is worth billions of dollars. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in our minds, anyway. Right, right. <laughs> I got it all in crypto, and it went south. No, that, that didn't work. Yeah, so we, we have interviewed people uh, who work directly on the theoretical parts, on programming for quantum computers. We had the Michal, who talked to us about actually writing code for quantum computers. Justin Jinge, who, who heads the whole program, trying to get it out. We talked about bringing an emerging technology to market and some of the challenges that are associated with, with an endeavor of that kind. And has there been somebody else? It seems like there's maybe been another person or two. I don't know. Did we talk to the Toronto people? Yeah, but that wasn't an interview. Okay. That was when we were standing up the accelerator. All right. All right. All right. We, we get up to a lot of mischief around yeah, here. We have, well, we have conversations outside of the podcast right. and inside the podcast. On occasion, we talk to people outside of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, all right. Give me another one of yours. All right. Um, Robin Hansen is a, a brilliant uh, person. And he is. He, yes. he, yeah. And just ask him the question about what, what, constitute being an expert and he has a lot to say about that his extemporaneous answer was pretty impressive i thought he just reeled off like yeah. five solid minutes of dialogue about it right right and then and then when you ask him questions about oh just just virtually anything under the sun uh and whether it's quantum computing or um or whether it's uh, cryptocurrency or um any of these topics he has he has unusual insight into how they come it's coming about and how it will affect people around the world he's one of these these people that has studied a wide variety of different methodologies ways of approaching problems so he was a 
physicist by training and then he did AI research for like nine years or something like that and eventually went back to school for economics at Caltech uh, or social studies or social science, whatever they call it there. They don't call it economics, but he's an economist by training and now he's at GMU and he, he applies an economic lens to all of these interesting fields. And I've actually met Dr. Hansen personally. We've gone back and forth on this uh, a fair bit. And he said that his, in his ideal life, what he would do is study the economics of science fiction and just think about how principles of economics apply to possible future worlds and playing those forward in a more rigorous way. Because I'm sure you've noticed that science fiction just does not take economics very seriously. Uh, and it, it's, the, it's worse the further back you go. So I, I have a true love for campy, like 1950s Isaac Asimov science fiction. I love it. But reading it, I can't help but shake my head and chuckle at parts of it because it'll, it'll be some civilization 10,000 years in the future. And they've got all the same jobs that people had when, when Isaac Asimov was writing. You, you've got like, uh, you know, just, you know, uh, film noir crime detectives, you know, who are going around different planets and they're, they're reading newspapers and stuff like they, they just, they don't take social and, evolution very seriously. And not once did they ever use a smartphone. Yeah. There's never a smartphone. I mean, to say nothing of crypto <laughs> or anything else. So like it's, it's just people 10,000 years in the future. And this is sort of a known problem in science fiction that it does not do very well with this kind of thing. And it doesn't take, uh, it, it doesn't take seriously how technologies interact with the, the structures of society. Yeah, one of the, one of the things they often do is they take one technology and they, advan and they play it forward. advance that forward, um, putting blinders on so they're not considering the advances. Anything else, right. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, to some extent you have to do because there's, yeah. there's no way you can build an entire world in your head. I mean, the, the granularity of the world of reality is always greater than what you can hold in your head. So I get, I get it. But I don't think it's done in a particularly good way. And... He, one one of the sources of his insights is just that he takes economics seriously. He takes these other fields seriously, and he applies insights from those fields to traditionally philosophical or technological questions, like his great filter hypothesis or the grabby aliens model. It's just it's just a, basically an economic model. He's just saying, okay, postulate that there are agents with certain properties. How can we reason about that? And and how does the evidence we currently have redound upon the model and 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 lead us to believe that we're in this branch of possibilities as opposed to this one? I'm I'm not. It's a simple thing to do. He's very smart and it takes a lot of intelligence and experience to do something like that. But fundamentally, he's just taking insights from over here that people have missed and have, and have ignored and neglected and applying them to the, the shinier things that people become all fascinated by, like, you know, mind uploads and stuff like that. He just approaches it from a philosophical perspective and is able to really derive insights that are jarring in some cases or, or really, I, I don't know. There's a, I forget who said it might've been Brian Kaplan or one of the other economists, one of the other well-known economists who says that, and I'm going to paraphrase and I might mess it up, but he says, when other economists tell me what they're working on, I shrug and say, yeah, okay. And I never think about it again. And when, when Robin Hanson tells me what he's working on, I say that can't be true. And I think about it for years. And I think that's true. <laughs> and I, I have the exact same response. He tells me something. I was like, I don't think so. I don't think so, Dr. Hanson. But then on the car ride home and then the next day when I should be working and then yeah. when I'm playing with my daughter, I'm like turning it over in my head. It's like, could he possibly be right? Could that possibly be right? So that was great. And unfortunately that was also another one that I, I'm noticing that all your favorite ones are ones I'm not involved in. So, <laughs> but you, you, would talk to him in the past. That's so you, true. Yeah. You're, you're he, very you know, familiar with his work. We've had dinner and uh, I actually interviewed him years and years ago for the, the Da Vinci Institute before there was a future yeah. podcast and it was just the DVI. Yeah. Uh, I interviewed him at, uh, he was in town for Sam Harris right? and he met with the less wrong group, the local less wrong group. So I got to see him. I got to interview him and then we had dinner. And then the next day I met him at the meetup 
And so, yeah, I got like two days of Robin Hanson. It's pretty great. Like, uh, he told me if, if you want to, if you want to replicate his performance, what you ought to do is spend like three years just reading all the leading textbooks in the fields that interest you. Just read some econ, some sociology, read some mechanical engineering, just, just read all the textbooks, take a couple of years, but you can form this encyclopedic overview of these different fields and how they fit together. And that's, that's really where the fertile research is at the intersections. Yeah. So let's move on to the next one that you fell in love with. Yeah, so one of the ones that really stood out in my mind was episode 23 with uh, Chung Won Bien and Andreas Strumuller, and they are the co-founders of Aut. They are essentially building an interface around GPT-3 and related technologies that make it a little easier to interact with, and so you can train it to do specific tasks. But GPT-3 is this huge language model. It's one of the biggest AI models ever to have been conceived or built or trained. And effectively what they did is they spun up this neural network with billions of parameters and fed it huge amounts of the internet. And you wouldn't think you could get that much from it, right? Because if you just slurry all this human, uh, all this human language and vocabulary and concepts together, you wouldn't think much comes out of it. It's actually surprisingly good. And And it does a lot of things you wouldn't think it'd be able to do very well. So it struggles with certain simple things like mathematics. Like if you just, it's not a very good calculator, but if you add it to, if you ask it to do something like whip up a simple web app, it won't always work, but it'll work more often than you'd think. It, it can actually generate the code in Python or in JavaScript or whatever to, to make a simple application. And that's not the sort of thing that I would have predicted even being a machine learning guy before I had seen it actually work. I would not have thought that they would do that. This, this is advancing very fast. It's and, shocking, actually. Yeah, and over the weekend, I saw an article that listed the top 10 AI art programs. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is... It's was, amazing. Would have been inconceivable a year ago. Right, right. Um, nobody even knew that those things existed, and I was just exposed to them like in the last couple of weeks. Uh, some of the different ones, but um, like Starry AI is one of them. But GPT three has got got its own version of this, and being able to put in three or four words, and it will actually generate. Um, uh, some kind of a masterpiece of right. what, it, what it thinks you, that uh, piece of artwork would look like. And, and some of them are, are quite, uh, uh, quite impressive. Um, I, even, I even put my own name in there, Futurist Thomas Fry, to oh, see, see that, what yeah. it would do. And, yeah, and it made me look um, oh, quite, quite quirky looking. But, A little ghoulish, uh, yeah. yeah. So it, it doesn't necessarily know who you are well enough. Uh, to say, yeah. But I bet if you'd said Abraham Lincoln, it would have, it would have gotten a pretty good one. Yeah. It's pretty amazing how well it generalizes and, and what it knows to fill in. So if you say, put you know, a blackbird on a branch of a tree, you know, it will fill in a lot of environmental details, right. l- little touches to the image that you couldn't possibly have specified verbally. Right. But, it, but it's just generalized well enough. The functions it's learned internally are good enough to fill those things in on the fly in a way that's really compelling. And I think it's taken a lot of us by surprise. I, well, so, so many of these technologies, um, people are just taking some little piece of the technology and they're spinning off a business around that. Um, uh, my wife and I had the conversation. I was taking her to the airport earlier today and uh, uh, Top Golf is right along the interstate where we're driving to the airport. And Top Golf actually started in 2001. Um, and it was all, uh, it's all a result of being able to put an RFID chip into a golf ball. And being able to track that golf ball 
created this massive, huge enterprise. That and they've got Top Golf operations in every major city around around the world. Actually, I see a lot of them over in Korea when I'm over there, and uh, and it's all because they can track where that ball goes, and so it knows what kind of score to give you after you've hit that ball. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Did you hit record on the video? Did I hit record on the video? I don't think we're actually recording the video. Wow. <laughs> that would be just wrong, wouldn't it? Mm. I, th- I think I'm just going to leave it in. I think I'm just going to leave it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not used to we're not used to the video yet. So, okay, so I, I will amend what I said earlier. We, we were going to plan on making this the first videoed one. Uh, should we start it now? Would it be weird to start it in the middle, or should we futz around with it? Maybe not. Yeah, let's let's start it. All right, let's. <laughs> yeah. Do we just record down here? Recording in progress. There yeah. we go. All right. So. Okay. I wonder. I so, wonder what our. So audio here we is. are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I. I think I tried to record one other one and I didn't. Hit and record. you didn't do that either. Well, we're, we're going to have to get used to it. Okay. So that's, that's the first mistake. Um, and oh, the, well, we, we virtually never make mistakes here. So. And this one's too big for us to edit out. There's no way to edit that out. Half the video's missing. All right. All right. Here we are. Yeah. So I said, I said at the top of the episode that this was going to be our first video podcast and God damn it. We're going to, we're going to record some video. We are 36 minutes into an hour long uh, episode and and um and we and we turn the video on. I don't know. We'll have to. Is it recording now? I want to make sure. Okay. Uh, I, I hope Trace is able to sync the audio in the video. Up. I have no idea how that's going to work. Yeah, we may end up throwing it out. We may end up throwing it out. And this yeah. whole time, I've been like paying attention to my posture and like making sure to look at the camera sometimes. <laughs> and, like, and all of that was yeah. wasted. They get none of the benefit. Yeah. Well, we did all the sliding work in the background. I don't, we rearranged the studio and I even described it when, when we hit record yeah. and we got all the lights and we watched some YouTube videos about how to set the lights up. So we didn't look yeah. like ghouls. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And we started off talking about how much we've learned from doing these podcasts, so, <laughs> but, but not how to do basic things like push record on a video podcast. Yeah. Now so, you, you were talking it. about, <laughs> you were talking about the, the businesses that people have spun up around these technologies and I was really, really impressed with Aut, their company, and and Illicit is a, it's like a side cover, a spinoff company that they made out of Aut. So Aut is the broader company where they're just trying to build advanced language models, uh, train them to be safe and uh, to do as little harm as possible, or or to only you know, cash out in ways that are that are benevolent and uh, productive. But Illicit, they're trying to build something a little bit more specific. They're trying to build an AI research assistant on top of GPT-3. And so I used this just the other day when I was I was researching the uh, ingredients in a supplement. And I was just asking, like, what's the connection between, you know, berberine and, and Alzheimer's or whatever? I just ask it these natural language questions. And it comes back with all the papers where it's been mentioned. It comes back with... Uh, a summary of the paper. Uh, sometimes it pulls directly out of the abstract, but sometimes it makes it its own and it, it will actually summarize the paper. It'll point out figures in the paper or summarize those as well, tell you where you should go in the paper to read it. Sometimes it'll pull out the methodology section and tell you about that. It's just, it's really incredible what they're getting. I, I've described it before as a natural language processing interface for human knowledge. So instead of just 
typing it into Google or Google Scholar, which is not bad. Uh, Semantic Search and, and Google Scholar are both pretty good, but this is like that on steroids. So like they're building it on top of this really powerful language model. And you can also do things that are a lot more open-ended with it. So you can give it a plan and have it critique your plan and come up with ways that the plan might fail or, or help you brainstorm things that are similar or come up with a list of researchers in a field. And like I could put in... Uh, I could put in Eliezer Yudkovsky and Gwern and Jan Lacoon and Demis Asabis and a couple of AI people that are pretty well known and it'll come up with 25 others. And on occasion, it does weird things like it'll just confabulate a person and it'll just make a person up because it sounds like a person that would be an AI researcher. And so you, you got to watch out for stuff like that. But it's actually, it's not too bad. It doesn't do that too often. Um, and it's just amazing what they're doing with it. And they, they want to make it so eventually you could do these really complex research reports, you know, the kind of thing that you pay oh, a yes. consultant $200,000 a year to do in like a couple of days, building it on top of that. And just the explosion of productivity is one that I'm really excited about. So I was, I was reading an article earlier today about how um, Amazon is actually capturing your entire life history now. Right. They bought Roomba. Yeah. Um, so when, when you have a chat bot that can actually listen to you in the background and then actually knowing about all your purchase history, um, uh, all of the things that you bought on Amazon <clears throat> and being able to, <clears throat> to fill in the blanks. And then uh, if you've actually talked to their chatbots long enough, um, then it, it can actually synthesize your voice and, um, and, and give you a personality in the online world. And oh, that's so, interesting. so like, if you die, then your kids and grandkids will be able to have conversations. Could still talk to you. Yeah, yeah. can still talk to you. Um, that's that's a, a kind of a quirky, maybe creepy way of leaving a legacy. Well, I, I've heard of people doing that with even more primitive versions of chatbots where they would feed their deceased father or mother's emails to a chatbot and talk to it, you know, yeah. and like ask it questions. And actually the experience can apparently be pretty cathartic. I mean, I've never done it myself, but all my parents are alive, but um to the people who've done it and written about it, it's it's apparently a very moving thing and, and it kind of helps them move on. And you could imagine AI therapists, you could imagine, like you said, you could imagine um, a matriarch or patriarch of a family continuing to provide guidance long after right. they're gone because they, they've got, you know, a thousand hours of transcriptions or a thousand hours of this audio that they recorded disgorging all the advice they could think to give, you yeah. know, as they were dying of cancer or whatever. You know, and then the algorithm can synthesize you know, effectively new insights from that corpus of knowledge and give it to grandkids who will never meet them, you know, who, right. for whom they're basically a distant memory, but they could still interact with them and ask them questions. Yeah. You know, one of the, um, my mom died I think, nine years ago. And one of the big things I missed after she passed away was just the ability to call her up and talk to her. Yeah. And uh, whether or not she was going to give me any good advice, she gave me a lot of bad advice. <laughs> But, but whether or not she gave me any good advice, it was less meaningful to me than just being having somebody on the other end of the line to talk to somebody to talk to. Yeah. And, um, and that, um, you know, just having that welcoming um, personality that listens to you, that's, that should not be underestimated. There's great value in that. Oh, I think there's enormous value in it. So the technologies that they're building on top of this are pretty remarkable. And I have recently started advising for a company called Engage Tech, which is trying to, well, they're doing a lot and I don't really want to get too into it. But one of the things they want to do is provide a toolkit for game developers who want to build educational games 
consisting of technologies like this one, like Dolly or GPT-3. And people have actually done some pretty interesting things just with the baseline GPT-3 uh, GPT models, where they will, you have to get kind of clever with how you ask the questions. But if you get good at it, you can ask it questions that will elicit information about historical figures. And so a person, uh, like a student, a fifth grader, could theoretically talk to Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or Da Vinci or somebody like that. I mean, it depends on how much of the text we actually have and how carefully you can train it and all that. It depends on a lot of factors. But theoretically, these kids could have conversations with these historical figures, which would bring it alive in a way that uh, teachers usually fail to do. So I, I think right, there's this whole right. renaissance. And one of the lightning round <laughs> questions is how AI will change education. So we don't have to say too much about that now. Yeah, I wrote a, wrote a column on uh, my night with AI. Adolf Hitler. Oh, uh, um, about how I don't know why you'd want to hit yeah, that hornet's nest, but hey, yeah, you know. um, yeah and, and how um, how intimidating he was, and how frightening that whole experience was, and and uh, and I think it could actually be all of those things. But I was anticipating, you know, twenty years in the future right. at that point, and. Um, I think we're going to have things like that, uh, maybe maybe like more of a shock treatment uh, understanding of history. Um, but I mean, we we just gloss over all the details in history, not not finding any good way to actually bring it to life. What what actually was was involved in yeah. uh, this discovery or this uh, breakthrough that they were having, or just this to let you feel the human drama of that episode right. in a way that it doesn't doesn't come across when you read about it so yeah. i often recommend primary sources in studying history it's a lot of work but if, if you can read the letters of nazi soldiers or something like that i mean oh. it, it just it's it's easy to look back on an episode as awful you know as yeah. the rise of the third reich and say oh well germans of the time were just evil and stupid you know yeah. and, and just totally miss that no like they were talked into it or they were lulled into it or they weren't paying enough attention. Like they were making human mistakes that could be made again. Yeah. And, and if you just say, well, mm -hmm. you know, fascists are just evil. I mean, they are, but I mean, reading the primary materials gives you a sense of what it was that people responded to in those things. And it's, yeah. it's easy to look back on it now and mm -hmm. say, well, this was disastrous, but like, are you so confident you would see that on the other side? If, if you were facing a, a future Mussolini today, would you know that that's what you were looking at or would you be swept along like everybody else was? Yeah. And, uh, is, is Putin actually insane or is he actually <laughs> got something? That's uh, something that came up and, and that, <clears throat> that came up a couple of times. Um, yeah, we, we've discussed Putin. Well, we discussed the whole Russia Ukraine situation with a couple of people that actually right, really good. Right. Um, so two of my favorite episodes were with, uh, Valina Chakarova, who's a geopolitics expert. I forget exactly how I came across her, but we, we follow each other on Twitter. And so I looked into her work a little bit and thought geopolitics sounds cool. Yeah. This is something futurists don't get into all that much <clears throat> for the aforementioned reasons that they neglect social evolution, and how societies work and that sort of thing. So I thought, well, we should have her on. And she's extremely eloquent and very, very good. And uh, she's very smart. She speaks like five languages or something. She's always right. writing in German and <laughs> right. various other things. I don't even know how you know all these languages. Um, but she studies power dynamics and has this thesis that the world is moving into a more into a more bipolar configuration or a multipolar configuration. Whereas the past hundred years, maybe 150 years, I mean, it depends on where you draw the lines, have been marked by American hegemony and the American empire and, and how monolithic it's been. That's changing now. China is a new 
power pole. Russia is a new power pole. And there are others that are opening up. And that means a lot of things. It's going to have ramifications for energy economics, for example. Like, what we're, are we going to see a fracturing of the grid where the, because, because energy is not the kind of thing you can just transport across the world. Like, you can't burn coal here and spin a turbine and, and send it to Moscow. Like, they have to have their own energy infrastructure. So it's right. going to redound in lots of different ways with respect to how the world produces its energy and consumes it. Anyway, all of that's just a long-winded way of saying those episodes are really cool. And we got into a lot of those questions and with Samuel Bourdieu as well, like the psychology of Putin and, you know, is he going crazy because he's surrounded by yes men? Is he playing 5D chess? What, what's actually going on there? Yeah, we also spent time talking to Rick Ferguson, um, who actually lived, right. <clears throat> he lives in Poland and um, he has, actually has a, a house full of, of Ukrainian refugees mm -hmm. living with him. Um, very knowledgeable and talking about the future of war and um, uh, kind of the this U Ukrainian battle is turning into this experimental test bed for for new weapons and new ways of thinking about war. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the people who are uh, doing work in that area, this is um, this bit is kind of a hotbed of experimentation happening right now. Um, so I found that to be such a fascinating episode as well. Yeah. Rick Ferguson was great. I remember that one because I showed up like halfway through, there was some big meeting I had to go to and I just, I popped in like the last 20 minutes and just started firing off questions. Yeah. But yeah, he, he was very knowledgeable about cybersecurity and how all that was playing out. And that's a theme that's been developing as well. And you and I were on uh, Chichar Raghavan's podcast not that long ago, talking about crypto and the future of war and how all of those things are playing out. Yeah. I didn't, didn't really have a follow-up to that. It's very interesting and I hope to explore it more in the future. So who's another one that you had on your list? Let's see. So <clears> I mentioned uh, Chungwon and Andreas. Let's see. Valina Chakarova. Frederick Turner. You remember Frederick? Episode 25? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he, uh, again, don't remember exactly how I came across him, but he is remarkably encyclopedic. Uh, one of the more encyclopedic scholars I know. He, he's sort of like a Robin Hanson. If Robin had never learned how to program a computer and never got into that sort of thing, but, but still liked mm -hmm. to draw from lots of different disciplines. Like if Robin Hanson had been super into poetry, like he might've been like Frederick Turner. So uh, Frederick has done all kinds of work on like the structure of poetry and epics. Apparently every major civilization has epics and they have commonalities like structural elements that are common in all of them. And he's got all these hypotheses, which I'm not prepared to get into off the cuff, but about, about how that relates to neurophysiology. And there's a biological basis for it being structured that way and the tempos and the way they work. It's like more memorable when you, when you set it up that way. And he's actually written epic poetry himself, a science fiction epic poetry about the terraforming of Mars, which I thought was pretty cool. And he's written a lot about ethics and how aesthetics and ethics play into each other. It's just a really fascinating conversation. Uh, so that one was a lot of fun and, and one that I'd wanted to do for a long time. And it's also speaks to our desire to plug some of the gaps in the futurist podcast offerings that are out there. I, I don't think they talk as much about poetry and how, how things like that matter and will continue to matter in a machine age. So I, I like that we cover that ground. We, we get into those issues a lot. Yeah, humans are much more complicated than, um, than we, we tend to think that we're much simpler than we are. Humans uh, are hard. That's your takeaway lesson. Yeah. Let's just wrap up there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, How about you? Give me another drop, one. Drop camera. I, I like Ter Teresa Grobecker. Uh, that was Ter a fun Teresa one. was talking about the future of real estate. And, um, oh, she and I have had numerous conversations on this topic of, of um, kind of uh, creating a NFT for your properties. Right. 
NFTs uh, <clears throat> are going to replace a title for your property in the future. But we can use uh, what's what I think of as a dynamic NFT, where everything that you do to your property, then you can put into this NFT. So you have kind of this, this history of all the improvements you've made. Every time you've had uh, the windows washed, you've had the house cleaned and right. um, and had it fumigated for bugs and whatever. Uh, you can have that in, entire history um, so then when it comes time to sell the house, you just have everything there. You don't have to do a title search. You don't have to do inspections because you have all of the information right there. So this, this idea of a dynamic NFT that captures all this information is such a game changer. And, and I asked her, I said, well, is this involved then being able to do kind of a 3D tour of your house? of that house. So if you don't want to travel to that city, you want to buy a house there. So you can just take a, a virtual tour of it. How do you know if it smells like cat pee? How do you, <laughs> how do you understand all of the- We're going to make NFTs of the smells. So. Yeah. And she says, well, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> <laughs> we always like to be several steps ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, I found the, the discussion absolutely fascinating. And, um, and later I actually got, uh, an NFT of our house, uh, from her. Oh, so really? She's actually selling them for like $10. So they're really inexpensive. Oh, that's cool. And I, I got the NFT of the house and it came with the wrong picture of the house. Oh, that's fine. And, and so, <laughs> and she said, Oh, these are supposed to be immutable. They're not supposed to be changeable. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then, did she change it? Yeah, she figured out how to, how yeah. to destroy the NFT, and then we started over. Oh well, if so, you remint it, that's okay. But, it got reminted. You can't yeah. you can't mute the immutable. <laughs> we should wrap on that. That's what we should. <laughs> that's a great takeaway there. Yeah. No, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, she yeah. she made a really good case for NFTs being potentially an important technology in the future of real estate because there's I mean, there's so much paperwork and there's so many questions about fire damage and smoke damage and did you ever remove the mold or replace this thing or even like servicing a washing machine yeah uh all or replacing the the appliances inside the house and i think there as elsewhere the question is really just is the tech there are the rails there it, it, is it yeah. the sort of thing where you can just do it really easily and you've got this institutional inertia in as much as there's already the mls system and a bunch of people are invested in it if she can overcome all of those, I think there's huge amounts of money to be made there. And it would make a lot of things easier. Yeah. I recently asked the question on social media, if we decided to change the building codes for our community so that they, they had um, um, building codes surrounding uh, a 500 year life for the structures being built. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. And how that would change uh, kind of the construction industry, mortgages and, insurance and everything surrounding it. Um, it becomes such an interesting question because, well, first of all, you can make probably a 500 year structure, but you're not going to get a 500 year roof on that house. You're not going to get a 500 year toilet or cabinets or even windows on, on that, that house. So, so what exactly would have the 500 year building code? Um, but it also gets to the the temporary thinking that we have going on that um, you're, you're, we're building things, the planned obsolescence mm -hmm. that we're building into everything that we're doing. And how do, how do we get past that? Um, 
And is that the right way to think about it? Or is it better to think about that we can 3D print a house and then when we get tired of it, we just grind it up and reprint it? We have both those questions, right? So should we be building for the long term or should we just be building for the short, short term, but better out of yeah. more recyclable stuff? Yeah, I, I like that idea, like a house that you could 3D print in a week, live yeah. in for five years and then consume later or just like toss into the ocean and let it biodegrade or whatever. Well, you can use the same material and rebuild it um somewhere else yeah, yeah rebuild it um or to it in the in same spot shape yeah, yeah to a different spec. same spot yeah that's pretty interesting. um yeah only you know 20 stories tall <laughs> <laughs> maybe i don't know that's a bad idea probably probably There's, there should be some laws there should, should be a couple of laws there should be a couple of laws about doing that yeah uh all right is it my turn it's your turn is it my turn okay so episode 29 with jason crawford that was a lot of fun. So Jason is somebody I've known about for a while. He's a progress guy. That's what he's known as. He studies the philosophy and the history of progress, what that idea means and how it's come about. So he's, you know, up to his eyeballs in books on ancient agricultural methods. And so he's thinking about like, so, you know, humans cultivated wheat. And then like, what happened after that? How did we get better at doing that? And what did that process look like? And there's all these interesting questions that he taps into, like, why did it take so long to invent the bicycle? All the basic parts for building a bicycle existed for hundreds or thousands of years before anyone putting them together. And yet it wasn't until whenever, I don't know when the bicycle was in the 19th century, probably, that somebody thought to put all this together or to put wheels on a suitcase. Yeah, somebody, uh, some people have speculated that it was da Vinci that actually invented the bicycle <laughs> as he, he has you some dra that. drawings that look like that. That kind of look like that. Yeah, but. Um, well, how about before a working prototype was built? How about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it takes, it takes a long time for people to figure out first uh, the idea of the wheel and then how to put two wheels together. That's, that takes a whole nother way of thinking yeah. about it and then making a durable wheel. And, um, and then how do, how do we make this usable? Mm -hmm. um, Human factors. Yeah. Just bring all that in. If, if you think, think about, like the American Indian, as an example, most of the pictures show uh, the Indians carrying these long poles behind with, with stuff strapped onto these poles behind right. the horses. Mm -hmm. uh, so they weren't using wheels there, but they were using wheels at that time over in Europe uh, and other parts of the world. Um, so it wasn't uh, something that was intuitively obvious to them. Uh, but as soon as the first person starts doing it, then everybody wakes up and says, Oh my God, that's so much easier. Of course. Yeah. Of course. That's yeah. how it would work. Yeah. Well, I've, I've read that the Mayans had wheels, but they use them for kids toys. It apparently never occurred to them to try to make machines out of them. And I have the famously the ancient Chinese had, um, you know, gunpowder and used it for fireworks and not weapons. So you have lots of cases like that. And of course it suggests the question, like, what are we currently sitting on? What gold mines are there right now? That if we just saw a way of combining this thing with that thing, such that it was durable, but it un unlocked new functionalities. Like what would be possible? I have no idea, but that's the sort of thing he thinks about. And his blog is Roots of Progress. I've been reading it for a lot of years and doing that interview was really a lot of fun. I've since met him in person, actually. We were at a conference recently, both of us, and okay. uh, had a little time to chat. But that was a really standout episode for me. One I'd wanted to do as soon as we started the podcast. He was one of my early uh, guests, uh, wish list guests, and we got him on episode 29. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, so it's interesting doing doing this podcast that it it kind of opens the door for us. It opens the door so that we 
we have a reason to say hi to people that we normally wouldn't that's true say hi to yep. and um one of the best things about it and it's introduced us to so many concepts that we would never never think of asking these questions until we come into contact with this unique individual mm -hmm. um so one of one of my my favorites we've had him on twice is stephen kotler yeah, yeah. Stephen Collar's uh, just an exceptionally bright person, but he's he's mastered this topic of flow, and how do, how do you um, I don't know put blinders on, energize your body in the right way, um, all naturally, of course, and and then you're you're able to just focus on this project that you're working on. Um, I've got I've got to think though that he has bad nights too. I, I, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. If he could turn flow on, he wouldn't waste his time with us. He'd be playing the stock market <laughs> or something like that. Thank God he has those bad moments where we'd never get a book out of him. We'd have no idea what he's doing. <laughs> he's only written like 187 books. I don't yeah. Know. He's, he's pretty prolific. No, he, he's a lot of fun. And he's a, he's a very interesting thinker as well. Cause he, he came from a poetry background he says he was terrible, terrible at poetry, but he came from like literature and poetry and then got really into science writing and became sort of a really well-known science journalist. And so by his telling, he was there the first time they did a bionic eye implant. And yeah. it was some poorly lit warehouse somewhere with like one doctor, you know, and like a, a, a guy, a surgical patient who had signed some waivers, but like, it's definitely of dubious legality, right? Yeah. Like probably this isn't legal what's happening right now, but he got to witness the birth of that field. It was and, never intended to be seen on TikTok. Right. <laughs> not TikTok content. Not <laughs> um, so, so he got to see all those things. And then of course he famously came into a collaboration with Peter Diamandis and they wrote bold and abundance and uh, a whole slew of really successful technology books. So he's also one of these people that marries the uh, more aesthetic artistic side and the technological side. And he does it really compelling. He's a great storyteller. I was just going to say, um, yeah. So he's, he, he does the nonfiction books exceptionally well. Right. And then he has several fiction books that he's written uh, at the that same was, time. That was the last. And so we, we had a lot of questions for him about uh, uh, going back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. And um, it, he says it's definitely a different mindset. And, and the, he said at one point he was writing both a fiction and a nonfiction book at the same time. And he was having all kinds of mental issues, <laughs> switching gears right, right. to go from one to the other. That, that was uh, quite uh, a kind of ear opening, I guess. It wasn't eye opening, it was ear opening. Right. Soul <laughs> opening, you might say. If we wanted to be pretentious about it. Oh, yeah. I remember when you asked him, would it be ethical to eat lab grown human meat? And he just. Oh. Yeah, he just, he just, just had no answer for that. He lost it. Yeah. He's like, oh, my God. God, I have no idea. Like, why would you? Why would you even ask that it question? Doesn't even have a, a reference point for how to answer. It. Classic Futurati podcast curveball. <laughs> or when I asked, uh, when I asked uh, Troy Cross what a concept is, he just he just like froze for ten seconds. He's like, I, I don't even know how to start answering a question like that. That's actually that's a question I've asked several people. Uh, in episode twenty three, that came up. I asked uh, Andreas, "What's a concept?" You know, and. <laughs> Yeah. I, I thought I thought he fielded that pretty well, actually. Yeah, well, we started off asking that question of um, the guy that invented the clock. How did he know? Oh, it? that's right. How did he know what time it was? Yeah, <laughs> David David Brin didn't care for that question. Yeah, he didn't like it at I all. I think uh, <laughs> did we ask Jared Boltima that question? And he was like, I thought his answer was pretty. He's like, well, you know, you'd have approximations, and you'd kind of know where the sun was at noon, and you'd kind of work backwards. I was like, yeah, no, that's plausible. That's probably exactly how they did it. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I imagine it was probably an iterative process, right? So it's, yeah. it's not just like one day there's a clock. It's like, no, you've got this like sundial thing that's you know, pretty accurate. And it's like, <laughs> well, but you want it mechanical and you want it to work at night. So you try to make an approximation yeah. of that, like a, a mechanical sundial that works all the time. And you uh, sort of iteratively build towards the grandfather clocks I, and digital I think, watches. I think yeah. you build a clock and then that's a technology in search of a problem. <laughs> could be yeah. before someone yeah. invented the clock no one cared what time it was or when they got places or what happened to them. yeah yeah we've gone uh quite a few times into the history of uh the history of time uh just that that idea that you know henry ford was so instrumental in in um that uh, getting clocks into the hands of the average person because before before the time of the assembly line, we didn't have that urgency, that driving need right. for being in the same place. Precision the, wasn't as necessary. Time. Yeah. And so we lived our lives in kind of a much sloppier form. Right. I, I often ask the question of why do we have, why do we schedule meetings at 3.15 in the afternoon? We do it because we can. <laughs> um, um, to show our power over nature we're yeah sit on a zoom call at 3 15 100 years ago nobody cared about that so but it's always quarter hour increments nobody ever nobody ever has one for 312 <laughs> like if you want to do that in zooms or, or zoom or teams you actually have to go in and edit it deliberately. oh okay i should do that and see how popular i can become at work <laughs> be a 312 guy <laughs> yeah 312 guy uh let's see is it my turn or yours uh your turn well we both have george selgin why, why did you want him um, well, he was, he was talking a lot about the future of crypto and he, uh, oh, he has this, uh, kind of this, this reputation that, it, uh, extends far beyond, um, kind of any of any individual science. And so, it, I mean, if he blesses the crypto world, then, then that uh, says a lot. It gives me a lot of confidence. I like him for the same reason. He's a classic monetary economist. So he's an economist, but he yeah. studies money specifically. And, and money mm -hmm. is famously one of those things that even really bright, really skilled economists get wrong. And I couldn't tell you exactly the reasons why. It's just people like George Selgin say that. It's, just, it's very tricky to think about. You can be a yeah. towering economist and just get money wrong in a very basic way. So he understands the history of free banking, of private money issuance, of wildcat banking, of regulations, all these things. We got way into the weeds on all that stuff. Like, oh, the Canadian banking system in the 19th century, and it, it's a useful case study for what was going on in the United States at the time, and like getting in back and forth in the legislation that was passed. But he knows all that stuff. So I really tend to take his opinion very seriously when he weighs in on cryptocurrency. And he's not a skeptic of crypto. He's like crypto cautious, I guess, crypto curious. It, it's, he likes the idea, yeah. but isn't super into any one project. <clears throat> and there's a tendency to get sucked into and be like an ETH maxi or a, or a Bitcoin maxi or a Cardano maxi or whatever, like to get really invested in one project. And he tends to sit back and be very aloof and just say like, I don't think this is going to work for the following reasons, but these parts of it are good. And he knows what he's talking about. Right. And, and that's some of the reasons why he's thinking that some sort of regulations are going to come in that kind of sort right. of through, um, separate the good from the bad parts. And, um, like the one, one thing that we've brought up several times is this idea that, uh, if somebody loses their Bitcoin, it's gone, right? It's just gone permanently. And if, if somebody loses their Bitcoin, um, that's over the next thousand years, 
very likely everybody will have lost their Bitcoin because uh, it's hard well, to keep stuff stewarded for a millennium. Yeah. Let's say you put it in a cold wallet and then you get hit by a Mack truck. Uh, how does anybody get it out of that right, cold right. wallet? It's just sitting there. And um, I don't know, is there a way to retrieve it? I, well, I think partly it's technological and partly it's cultural. So yeah. on the one hand, you have technologies like multi-sig wallets where M of N people can open it. So like six out of 10 signatures yeah. are required to open it. So if one person got hit by a Mack truck, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be the death knell for that Bitcoin cash. Like other people could still access it, but it has to be cultural in as much as people have to use those technologies. So people have to be aware that they exist. They have to want to steward that long-term. They have to actually take the steps and then you need legal frameworks around that. How do you pass it on? How do you protect it? That sort of thing. Yeah. So there's, there's no FDIC for, nope. uh, for Bitcoin at not, not at this point, nor, probably will there ever be nor i think should there be it's not meant to be that kind of thing it's yeah. meant to be a, a self-sovereign currency that that is not insured but also can't be taken from you <laughs> short of you know beating you with a hose i mean like that's what it, they would have to resort to torture to get it out of you but if you secure it properly then uh so you can do it with a hose yeah <laughs> well that's a uh, uh, balaji srinivasan are you familiar with him the he calls it the rubber hose attack where it's like you're not actually attacking the bitcoin network but if you beat somebody with a rubber hose you can probably get their seed, seed phrase out of them but that's not scalable <laughs> the, the, the thing about the current prevailing monetary order is that you can rob an entire population or even almost everyone on earth in a very scalable fashion like you just print more and more currency and so the value of your savings goes down and you can pay for whatever projects you want to and you know benefit from cantillon effects what crypto is supposed to do whether it will succeed or not i don't know but what it's supposed to do is obviate a lot of that and make it so that you can keep your currency it's deflationary and it appreciates in value over time and it's fully self-custodial and you can put it on your wallet keep it safe and short of being beaten with a hose it can't be taken from you in a, in a way that yeah. your Wells Fargo account can simply be frozen. Your, your, your crypto cannot, I mean, Coinbase could, right. Yeah. And so like one caveat I want to issue there is that in fact, the way it's played out is that there've been a lot of centralized custodial exchanges and that's where everybody's parking their crypto. I mean, my, my crypto is on Coinbase. I'm a degenerate Bitcoiner. So I, I've, yeah. I've got a wallet. I'm, I'm looking into it. I'm going to get it off. It's, it's a project that I've got on the back burner, but I think that as time goes on, hopefully more and more people will be educated to that. And as the technology matures, having the Bitcoin talk or the whatever will, will just be a part of growing up. Like parents will just talk to their kids about custodying, <laughs> custodying their, their own crap. Like I will sit my daughter down when she's 12 or 13 and say, this is a Bitcoin, right? I'm going to give you about one. the birds and the bees right. and the Bitcoins, yeah. the birds, bees and the Bitcoins. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then, you know, people I think will develop an awareness of how important it is. Like that's one step you have to actually care about it first. Right. You have to realize that money's a technology the way it works actually matters. And it, and it has huge effects on, on the way civilization is structured and how it advances. And so it's very important to get this right. Crypto is supposed to be an antidote to those things, but it doesn't really work if you put it on a centralized exchange that the government can KYC and come in and take anytime they want to. It's essentially just Wells Fargo, but for crypto. I hope that as time goes on, you'll see less and less of that. You'll see more decentralized exchanges, or at least may, maybe there'll still be Coinbase's and Binance's, but there will be alternatives as well, decentralized alternatives, which are less... Uh, prone to that sort of attack. And you'll, you'll see people who take that sovereignty more seriously. I mean, all of that remains to be seen. Those are, those right. are hopes and right. not predictions. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I loved when we had to talk with uh, Jeremy Clark uh, about, oh, yeah. about the limits of Bitcoin, or I mean, of blockchain, the limits of, you know, you put everything on the blockchain and, and suddenly um, early on, I mean, when Bitcoin first came out, then everybody started speculating, oh, you can use blockchain for this and you can use it for that. So you can put everything on the blockchain. Yeah, put everything on the blockchain, but blockchain ends up being um, kind of an onerous solution to a lot uh, of lots of lots of the problems. Um, so we, we went down the path of this idea of having uh, a voting blockchain. Um, well, doing a global election, as an example, where you don't have uh, the identities of all the people in the world, is there a way of actually, I don't know, taking a photograph of the individual that's voting and then send it in? And, and um, he said they've tried that and it did, just didn't work. Um, so I was discouraged in some of my th earlier theories and <laughs> how that might actually pan out. No, he, he was great for that reason. Exactly what you said. He is a cybersecurity guy or uh, yeah, he's cybersecurity, right? He's uh, he's an academic. So he studies yeah. computer security in, in Toronto. Yeah. And he really knows the tech very intimately, you know, so he, he knows how the blockchain works and how these zero knowledge proofs work and these rollups work and all these layer twos. He really knows all that stuff. So he's kind of like George Selgin, but on the tech side, like if he comes out and says, this probably isn't going to work, I'm inclined to take him very seriously. But if he puts his imprimatur on a project, I'm also inclined to take that as a really strong vote of confidence. So I really like talking to people who are super into the technology, but they're not married to one perspective too much. I mean, I love Bitcoin maxis and I read, I follow a bunch of them on Twitter and like get into their little flame wars and stuff. So I don't have a problem with the passion, but it is nice to have also that cohort of people who are just pure scholars who are like, look, I don't have a dog in this fight, but here's what the math says. Here's what the tech says. Like you can build this and it'll probably work. You can build that and it probably won't. I think that's also a really valuable ballast to have in the conversation. Right. Right. So, so we've gone over a tremendous number of people that we've, we've interviewed and uh, quite a wide range of topics. Mm -hmm. um, and this in no way limits our future topics that we're going to talk about, because we're going to go off on some really <laughs> deep ends in the not too distant future. Here. Hopefully on episode 200, <laughs> we'll remember to hit yeah, record. You, you come back for episode 200 and, Boy, you're gonna, you're gonna, your mind's gonna get blown on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what ground we'll cover? Yeah. Um, so let's see. I uh, another one I really liked was uh, with uh, Nam Sardar. You remember her, uh, the oh, yeah. Monero advocate? Yeah, she's she's another one of these people that. Uh, well, she's a Monero maxi, right? So she thinks Bitcoin's not fungible and it's got all these problems. I'm actually, we're setting up an interview. Uh, she's starting a podcast. So I'm going to be one of the first guests to talk. So I'm going to take the Bitcoin side. She's going to take the Monero side. And we're just going to go back and forth and hash some of these issues out. But I thought that was really excellent as well. She's very good at, at explaining cryptocurrencies and like why they matter and why they're important civilizationally. But she has a very different approach to it. She, she didn't come down on Bitcoin, which like most of the people I know really well are kind of Bitcoin maxis. Like even when I've been in startups doing data science work for a blockchain analytics company, they're mostly Bitcoin maxis. Maybe they have some ETH too. She's the first person I know of who is in love with this different project and really advocates for it strongly. And it's it's a compelling, I, I think it's a compelling alternative, uh, maybe not to Bitcoin proper, but I, I think it stands as a, a serious crypto project that has real potential to do valuable things in the future. So I thought that was a, a great conversation. I really had a lot of fun. Getting yeah. There. Well, Monero has um, such unique properties. It was, uh, I might be wrong, but that was one of the first super encrypted 
cryptocurrency. Right, right. And um, and so that was that really stood out in the minds of lots of people that that was uh, what was wrong with a lot of the existing cryptocurrencies at that time. So this this gave an alternative to letting the government know what what's going on in the background so right it just has stronger privacy guarantees baked into the protocol so it was worth bitcoin you've got the immutable distributed public ledger theoretically if you do it correctly no one should ever be able to attach a transaction to you but people don't do it correctly almost ever and if i figure out one of these addresses i can see everything it's ever done so i can see any other crimes you've committed right so if i can tag you with this one thing the whole record stands open. And so Monero bakes a lot of privacy guarantees in at the protocol level so that just by default, the names are masked and you don't entirely know who you're transacting with. And by default, the transaction amounts are masked as well. So you can't tell if it's, uh, you know, thousands of dollars or millions of dollars or whatever. It just obscures a lot of those things, which has certain drawbacks as well. But you can see the appeal. If what you're looking for is a currency that's unsurvailable that the government cannot use and subpoena and, and use against you to lock you away. Monero is a, a pretty compelling alternative. Uh, I don't know as much about the technical details and couldn't speak to them authoritatively, but from what I understand, if you are careful enough and you know what you're doing, you can even do that with Bitcoin, but it's a whole extra thing. It's a whole bunch of steps because it's not baked into the protocol layer the way that it is with Monero. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we've covered a tremendous amount of ground. I think um, this is probably bringing us to the end of this. We got to do the lightning round, though. We got to get all those uh, clips for TikTok, right? So, oh yeah, yeah. So we're gonna do. We're gonna try to do a minute each. I don't know if we should set a timer. I'll probably just mess that up. Let's just try to keep it consistent. How about that? All right. So I've got these questions here. Uh, the first two are for me, and then I think the other three are for you. And we're gonna try to get some clips out of this. So you want to ask me the the first question and the second one? Okay. Um, all right. What is the future of money? So the future of money, as I see it, it's going to be on the one hand, uh, sort of the multipolar world that Belina Chakarova was talking about, but for, for a monetary order. So I think that as time goes on, governments are going to continue to print currencies to finance boondoggle projects and to kick the can of debt repaying down the road. And I think that people are going to gradually get more fed up with that, and they're going to continue to invest in cryptocurrency projects and develop their own projects. I don't have a strong opinion as to which is going to be the one that wins. I lean towards Bitcoin. I think it's got the best monetary properties of any of the cryptocurrencies, but I wouldn't say confidently that it's going to be the one that will be the reserve currency of the world. But I think that there are cracks opening up in the dollar's hegemony, and it is plausible that a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin will go through. And either way, I think the cat is out of the bag and people will continue to tinker with these technologies to try to hide their monetary activities from the government and to protect the value of their savings into the future. That's pretty good. All right. One of yours. What is the future of genetic engineering? Yeah, I think genetic engineering is going to go off in a lot of different directions. But one that I've been focusing on is the the whole thought of designer babies. Yeah. Uh, the, The first... Um, things we'll see surrounding this is cures for some of the genetic um, uh, defects that are being passed from one generation to the next. And then we're going to naturally get into some of the the attributes that this unborn child is going to have, like what's the hair color? Can I pick the hair color? Can I be screaming green? Uh, (laughs) we We can also have um, I don't know that that Tom Cruise smile, or we can have 
uh, somebody with um, uh, be beautiful looks and uh, all of those things. But eventually, we're going to get to the things that that, that really start to matter, you know, kids that are super smart, super strong, um, super durable. Um, and, and so they'll just be super in so many different ways. And then I like to ask this question, you know, what's the value of, uh, of a super baby that grows up to be a superhuman? Um, is it going to be a uh, hundred X a hundred times more than the average person today is, is, uh, is it potentially the value of a, a superhuman is going to be a billion dollars over their lifetime. And if, if that's true, then every country is going to start competing to create superhumans. And uh, the one with the most superhumans wins, apparently, I don't know, some, somehow that thinking falls, falls into that camp. But anyway, I think that there's lots of opportunity in the genetic engineering world. That was far too long for TikTok. <laughs> we cannot put that on TikTok. All right, you gotta ask me this one. All right. <clears throat> when will we see economically useful quantum computers? I think that we will see economically useful quantum computers relatively soon. So when I went into the podcast with this whole project, I was fairly skeptical of quantum computing. And I imagined that what you needed was a full bore end-to-end -end general purpose quantum computer in order to see any value from it. But I've since come to believe that that perspective is mistaken and that a lot of other people are making similar mistakes. So Quantum computing is emerging and maturing in a world that is fundamentally different from the world of classical compute. And it's popular to compare quantum computing today to where vacuum tube computers were in the 60s or 70s. But I think that misses important differences in how the industry is structured and how that structure impacts the opportunities that you'll have to apply quantum computing to different problems. So quantum computing today already has the benefit of a world that's shot through with classical computing. So you've already got classical computing pipelines for doing things like bioinformatics or using a Markov model to calculate the covariance matrix of a universe of stocks. Those are shot through with bottlenecks and many of those bottlenecks can be solved with quantum computers. So you don't need a full end-to-end -end quantum computing system. You can just have a pretty good set of 20 qubits that, that implement a hard-coded algorithm that solved one problem for Goldman Sachs and make that available over an API. And I bet that would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. So I think we're not that far away from seeing economic value from quantum computing. What is the future of work? Uh, the future of work, a great question, because wherever there's, <laughs> whenever, whenever we have problems, we're going to have work. And I don't see any end to the problems that we're having. Now, the this is common fallacy that the um, we're going to start automating all these jobs out of existence, but we're, we're not automating jobs out of existence. We're automating tasks out of existence. So the jobs themselves are still going to be there, but they're going to change. They're going to morph and, and get modified along the way. And so uh, as we, we see these tasks go away, then we're, we're starting to automate pieces of that. And uh, so we're going to, all of the technology that's being used to automate tasks out of existence is the same technology that's going to be building the businesses and the industries of the future. So that's what we need to be focusing on. So anybody who's losing their job to technology should actually turn around and study that technology because that's what's going to create his future jobs. Fantastic. And the last one is how will AI change education? You have 
59 seconds. 59 Wow. AI is going to come in and change education in lots of interesting ways. I, I see a world where we have lots of AI bots that we're interfacing with. The first one will be an AI buddy bot that we talk back and forth to. It'll be charged with protecting our privacy, but it'll be this, this friend that we want to talk back and forth to, and, and it will tell it our most intimate secrets. And it will quickly learn what skills that we're proficient in, what skills we're deficient in, what's going to take us, uh, what's going to be needed to bring us up to speed in those new skills. And then we'll have AI assessment bots that assess all of the things that we're learning on a daily basis, AI coach bots that will coach us along the way, and AI teacher bots that then will fill in the gaps of everything that we need to learn. And um, and there's a whole lot more that's going into this thinking, but I'll just leave it at that. Well, fantastic. There you have it, Futurati. That is episode 100 of the Futurati podcast. We're coming in at 90 minutes, of which about 45 was actually on video. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I'm sort of curious as to what that's going to be like for them when they finally see it. You know, it's just like, are they going to put it on in the background? And then all of a sudden the image comes on like where it was the thumbnail before. And then like, all of a sudden it's us talking, are they going to be super confused? I don't know. Maybe I should record part of the intro and be like, we forgot to hit record on the zoom call. Yeah. Maybe we should do a new intro. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I'm kind of leaning towards uh, leaving why don't, it. Why don't we leave warts and all it's why don't we just do two minutes that we can stick onto the front end and uh, tell people you're going to go dark for a little bit, but then you come out of the, the tunnel. <laughs> All right. Well, we, we, we can kick that around. Uh, no, this was great. I, I have really enjoyed what's it been two and a half years, roughly two, two years, two and a half years. Yeah. I, I've really enjoyed all the episodes we've done. I've learned a tremendous amount from the people we've interviewed and I'm really grateful for everyone who's listened along with us and learned as well. And I look forward to hopefully doing a hundred more episodes. Yeah. This is uh, setting the stage for, um, a very interesting future here. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we, we'll try to get the video working better next time. I, th I think we're going to try to do more video podcasts, yeah. but um, and, until the next episode. All right. Have a great evening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.